0: You can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, which is where we'll be this morning. I'm just going to move this out of the way. Mark chapter 2 will be in verses 1 to 17 this morning. I'll read it in just a moment, but I actually want you to think about a movie. Captain America... Civil War. It's the 2016 movie where the Avengers fight each other. And if this is new to you, that might surprise you. You're like, the Avengers are the good guys. They're not supposed to be fighting each other. That's true. That's why the movie is such a good movie, because it's actually all about a clash of authorities. The main character, Captain America, is really wrestling with how does he lead the people? How does he use his word for their good? And the other main character, Iron Man, another good guy, has a different take on life and uses his authority for the people against Captain America. The whole movie, this kind of fight between Iron Man and Captain America, climaxes in this airport scene where two teams of six Avengers fight each other and in the process destroy the whole local airport. Lots of explosions. It's a pretty destructive battle. It's a really great on-screen battle. One group is led by Iron Man, the other by Captain America. And throughout the movie, you, the viewer, are led to ask the question, who's got the right outlook? Who has the authority I can trust? It's either Captain America or Iron Man. You've got to pick. Captain America values liberty and freedom and choice. He's always idealistic. He wants no compromise. Iron Man, on the other hand, values accountability, oversight, he thinks those are going to lead to safety for everyone. Which authority can the people trust as true? Whose word proves good for the people? Well, as we turn to Mark chapter 2 in the Bible, we find something quite similar. Admittedly, there's no destructive battles or explosions. But a conflict just as severe and in an opposition all the more forceful arises. In Mark chapter 2 verse 1 all the way to chapter 3 verse 6 we find the next unit of Mark's gospel. Just as Pastor Ben preached through Mark chapter 1 last month, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 for the next 3 weeks together. In that section Mark presents Jesus's ministry in Galilee, where Jesus is going to come into conflict with the religious leaders over and over Again, it's a clash of authority. Mark shows us five such clashes of authority. This morning in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, we're going to look at the first two in the series of five. In the text, we'll see Jesus' claim to authority as called into question by the scribes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But we'll also see how Jesus intends to use his authority. It's for the good of the people. Jesus intends to use his authority for the good of the people. Jesus aims to help those who have the greatest need and a real personal recognition of that need. Listen to God's word in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17 as I read. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If we wanted to summarize that whole passage with one sentence, we could say something like this. Jesus helps those who realize their need. That's the main idea from God's word this morning. Jesus helps those who realize their need. And in fact, Jesus can only help you if you Realize your need. So how do you get Jesus' help? Well, first, you must realize your need. Second, you must recognize his authority. And third, if you do that, you will receive his friendship. That's our outline from God's word this morning. First, in verses 1 to 5, realize your need. Second, in verses 6 to 12, Recognize his authority. And third, in verses 13 to 17, receive his friendship. You must realize you're sick before Jesus can heal you. So let's begin with our first point from the text. Realize your need in verses 1 to 5. Look again at verses 1 and 2, where we see Jesus preaching to a massive crowd. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. The home that Jesus preached in here and the people had gathered to probably belonged to Peter and Andrew, who Jesus has just called to himself in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. You can see that. This home probably became a kind of base camp for Jesus' ministry, in Capernaum specifically, but in Galilee more broadly as well. If you don't know, Capernaum is a city in the region that we call Galilee. But think for a second about what's going on here. Do you see it in the text? There's no room. The place is packed. It's not like this room, where if you look around for just a second, you see we've got little aisles here where you can stand up and go to the restroom if you need to. It's not that kind of packed. It's more like London Underground. Like the subway system under the city of London in the U.K., at the busiest time of day, when you have to push through people to get to the train on time. It's like that packed. And we need to get a sense of the setting if we're gonna get a sense of the tension in the story that we just heard. Notice what Jesus is doing in order to minister to these crowds. The text says he was preaching the word to them. It says it at the end of verse two. Jesus has just told us in Mark chapter one, verse 38, that this is why he came to preach Jesus came to preach. The word that Jesus preaches is the good news that the kingdom of God is near. If you've been with us in Mark chapter one, you realize this follows along from that chapter and makes a lot of sense in light of it. He's preaching the word, the good news, the gospel of God, that the kingdom of God has come. Why? Because the king is here. With the king comes the kingdom. Jesus is delivering this news that the kingdom is, is here. And no doubt, that's why some of the crowd there that day have come to hear Jesus preach, to see him, and some of them likely to see what he can give them. Maybe a healing, maybe a good moral lesson, maybe something even more important that I think becomes clear as we continue in the text. Look at verses three and four again. The focus of the narrative here shifts to the four men and their paralyzed friend. Listen to Verses 3 and 4, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowds, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. These men come to Jesus because they have a clear and obvious need that they think Jesus can help them with. A sick friend. That's what's brought them there. And it makes sense in a lot of ways. We've just come out of Mark chapter one where Jesus is healing everyone in the city it seems like or at least the whole city's coming to him to get healed because he's healed a few folks. We're gonna bring our paralytic friend for the same sort of thing, right? That's why the crowds are there. They want physical healing or even the casting out of demons that only Jesus can do. But there's so many people coming to Jesus that these men can't get to him. So they use what might seem like odd methods to us. Maybe you read the text this week and you were thinking, what's up with the whole roof thing? Well, houses like these in the first century had an outside staircase that led up to a flat roof full of, made of branches and sod. So you can picture what's happening is the men are digging through that roof so that they can lower their friend down. Because again, subway system, they can't get through. So that's the scene. But don't miss the spiritual symbolism in the scene. It's only going to get more clear as we continue in the passage this morning. These men realize their need for Jesus to help, and they overcome obstacles and barriers between them and Him, including a roof. They realize their need just as we must do if we're going to get anything from Jesus, the kind of help that only He can provide. Notice, too, the situation of the paralytic is precisely what brings him to Jesus. He can't walk, so he's carried to Christ. And isn't it true in our own lives that often it's our affliction that carries us to Christ? Sometimes the hardest things in life bring us to Jesus. Now, of course, if we're in Christ, God intends even our afflictions for our good, We might understandably wish our circumstances were different. I often do, especially with the physically troubling and difficult things, the sufferings we all face. But I think a key question for us from this text must be this. Would you rather have full use of your body or come to know Jesus? Which is more important, walking or having your sins forgiven? This paralyzed man would not have come to Christ apart from the affliction that brought him there. And if it's difficult for you to hear that, just as it's difficult for me at times, we should pray. We should pray to God and ask Him to give us a heart that agrees with Psalm 119, verse 71. We should pray that we'd be able to say with the psalmist, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Pray that God would make that attitude of faith the posture of your heart. As a church, we want to be able to say what Charles Spurgeon once said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. And if you're here today and you're not self-consciously following Christ, I wonder if it's affliction that brought you here. Maybe you've realized some terrible sickness in your own life, maybe suddenly. Maybe it's not you, but it's a friend or family member. Have you yet been forced to realize your need? Jesus receives all those who come to him, and he's the only one who can do anything about the help we most need. And I would just urge you, friend, to come to Christ. Regardless of what brought you to him, come to Christ by faith, receive his forgiveness, he can do it. That's what our whole church would want you to know if you're here and you're not following Jesus. He may not heal you, but he can forgive you. Now it's clear in the text, if we move on to verse 5, that there's something else going on here. Not just the physical healing and physical need of the paralytic, but some deeper, greater spiritual need. You can tell because of how Jesus responds. Look at verse 5 again. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe that strikes you as a little out of place. Maybe it even seems like it's inappropriate or irrelevant to the immediate situation. It's a bit like you going to see your doctor for a sprained ankle. And she says, I forgive your sins. It would be odd. I didn't come for that. I came for the ankle. But it's all about realizing your need. It's all about realizing what you need most. There's a sickness, which you have and I have, that is much worse than not being able to walk. The Bible calls it sin, sin. If you don't know, sin is just the breaking of God's law. It's a good definition for sin. It's living differently from how our maker intends for us to live. And sin is the reason that there are paralytics in the world. Sin is the reason for all the disease and pain and suffering that we all face. Now I want to be clear, with respect to the paralytic in Mark 2, I don't think it's his sin that got him here. But in the Bible, there's a connection between sin and sickness and even suffering more broadly. Biblically considered, all sickness is the result of sin. But not all of your sickness is the result of your sin. We live in a world full of people who have not lived as God wants us to live. It started with our first parents, Adam and Eve, who didn't do what God told them to do. And because of that, We live in a world full of sin and suffering and sickness. That's all the result of disobeying God. But not all of your sickness is the result of your sin necessarily. In fact, Jesus teaches elsewhere that some people are born suffering from terrible physical tragedies through no fault of their own or their families, but just so that God would be known and glorified. That's what he says in John chapter 9. The first three verses. Regardless of what got this man paralyzed, notice how Jesus responds. We've been looking at it in verse 5. He forgives his sins. He gives him the most important healing that any of us could need or want. But notice also that forgiveness follows faith. That's what Jesus says in the passage. He sees their faith and he forgives their sins. Forgiveness follows faith which means you won't get forgiven unless you first believe in Jesus, unless you first have faith. When Jesus sees their faith, that word, it's the first time Mark uses this word in his gospel. And in Mark's gospel, faith is always accompanied with and expressed by action. It's the four friends doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. That's faith. It's in utter contrast to the scribes who are, the text says, just sitting there. This is a faith that works. It's living and active, saving faith, which the book of James describes. And of course, if you would realize your need, and you must, then you too must have this kind of faith in Jesus. Believing in his gospel, becoming a citizen of his kingdom, turning from sin and trusting in him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and we use that word a lot, I just want to define what I mean by it. When I say somebody's a Christian, I mean other people in your life would recognize that you're following Jesus. If you're not a Christian, then I would urge you and even plead with you to turn to Christ. That he can forgive your sins. He might not heal you, but he can forgive you. And if you turn to him in faith, he will. He never casts out anyone who comes to him. He's a good, kind Savior. He uses his authority for our good you want to talk to somebody about that, what that might look like for you, I'll be standing in the back after the service, or you can just turn to any of the members of this church sitting next to you, and they'd love to talk to you about how you can have your sins forgiven. So that's our first point about how to receive Jesus's help. You must realize your needs. Second, you need to recognize his authority. Let's consider verses 6 to 12 next. Again, the story abruptly shifts perspective. Mark moves focus from the friends and the paralytic to the suspicious scribes. Look again at verses 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Scribes, if you don't know, were experts in the law. They were caretakers of the sacred tradition that interpreted that law in binding ways on people. They're the religious leaders of the day. And their accusation against Jesus is perhaps the most serious one. They don't just think he's lying. They think he's blaspheming. For the scribes, Jesus has put himself in the place of God in an inappropriate way. He's made himself out to be God. People, by the way, say silly things about how the Bible never says that Jesus is God? Which is a silly thing, because if you read a passage like this one, it just couldn't be clearer. Jesus is God. He does what only God can do. The scribes are not confused about this. The people who hate Jesus the most are the clearest on who he's saying he is, God. We'll see that more here in a moment. I just want to point out that the scribes are right in one way and wrong in two. They're right that only God can forgive sins. That's the clear teaching of the Old Testament scriptures up to this point in time that we're reading about in a number of places that we could look at. Only God can forgive sins. That's the teaching of the Bible. The scribes are right about that. But they're wrong about two other things that are just as important. First, they misunderstood the nature of the coming kingdom. The scribes misunderstood the nature of the coming kingdom. Those who should be experts in the law have misunderstood something so significant. As we've seen it in Mark's gospel, Jesus is the king who brings the kingdom of God. And with the kingdom of God, which he's already made clear in chapter one is near, comes full, final forgiveness of sins. A lot of places we could look at, but listen to Isaiah thirty-three twenty-four. Isaiah thirty three twenty four. 24. The prophet is talking about the people of the kingdom, and he says this, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. See how sin and sickness go together in the Bible. For the people of the kingdom, you can expect healing and forgiveness. Now, of course, we don't always receive healing in this life, but we will in the next There is a happy land, far, far away, where saints in glory stand, bright, bright as day. The scribes misunderstood the nature of the coming kingdom. They also misunderstood the nature of the Messiah, the one who would bring the kingdom. They didn't get that he would be God himself. There's a whole theology in this passage of the relationship between faith and reason which I'm pursuing a dissertation in, that we don't have time for, but I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. It's just interesting to me that the scribes can't make sense of the incarnation. Like, they can't get there. That God would become a man in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The scribes object precisely because they are reasoning or thinking apart from faith. They can't ascend to the mystery of the incarnation. They can't see how Messiah, in his coming and bringing the kingdom, including forgiveness of sins, would be God himself in the flesh. So yes, only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is God. They're looking at him, thinking about him, seeing him talk, seeing him heal people and cast out demons and preach. There he is, right before their eyes, and they can't see it because they don't have faith. Mark's gospel makes this clear by showing how Jesus does what only God can do. And for us, since it's indeed the case that only God can forgive sins, only God can deal with the thing we need most, we shouldn't go anywhere else. We shouldn't look anywhere else other than God. How easy it is, friends, to go to other things, whether it be political commentators, social media influencers. I mean, you name it. We will go to anything but God to deal with our greatest problem. And we ought not. There's no one else who can help us. I'm not saying those things don't have their place and aren't useful at all. I'm just saying if you're like me, sometimes I run to those things instead of prayer and scripture, and the Lord Jesus, because I deep down think that's what will heal me. We should turn from that. We should conform our minds rather to God's word. This is the most crucial part of recognizing Jesus's authority, seeing him as the one who can do only what God can do, or rather seeing him as one who can do what only God can do. It's actually a different sentence. And we can see Jesus doing something unique in the next two verses of Mark as well. Look at verses eight and nine. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Here again, we see Jesus do something that only God can do. Did you see it in the text? You might have thought that the scribes voiced their objection, but they didn't do that. Jesus didn't hear their voices. Nobody did. They didn't say anything. The text says in verses 6 and 8 that they were questioning in their hearts. Jesus can hear their thoughts. He knows their hearts. How do we know he's God? He does what only God can do. He forgives sins and he reads minds. All right, so what's up with verse nine? The which is easier. Which is easier, forgiveness or healing? That's the question he poses to the scribes. What does it mean for one of those to be easier than the other? I wanna start with what I think it doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean that it's more difficult for God to forgive your sins than to heal you or vice versa because nothing is difficult for God. God. He's the all-powerful one, the only all-powerful one. Nothing is difficult for him, forgiveness or healing. It's not that kind of a question or a comment. Rather, he points us to the reality that a claim to heal is much easier to prove than a claim to forgive sins. Why? Because one you can only hear and the other you can see. They can't see anything happen when forgiveness comes, but they can see something change when it, A man who couldn't walk stands up. Jesus is providing evidence of his claim to forgive by giving them a visible witness. Jesus adds his works to his word. The works of Jesus validate the words of Jesus. As one man said, he did the miracle that they could see, that they might know that he had done the other that they could not see. No doubt, in terms of what is more important or what involves more activity, it's obviously the forgiveness of sins. I mean, just think about it for a second. What does God have to do to heal one sinner, to forgive one sinner? I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this, but I know it requires at least this much. Are you ready? To forgive one sinner, God must become a man... He must live perfectly without any sin of his own. He must die in the place of sinners, paying the debt of death we deserve to pay. He must rise from the dead to conquer the grave and validate everything he said. He must ascend to the throne of heaven where he came from. He must send his spirit to keep his people until the last day. He must return in glory to judge. He must create a new heavens and a new earth where God can dwell with forgiven sinners for eternity. That's a lot of work in one sense. Of course, nothing in that is difficult for the all-powerful God. But it's a lot of work that apart from forgiveness of sins, Jesus didn't have to do. So which is easier to say? I forgive your sins. Because you can't show that But by adding his works to his word, Jesus shows what he says. He is who he says he is. What we're seeing is that Jesus has a unique identity as the Son of God, the Messiah who proclaims and brings the kingdom of God. But because he has this unique identity, he also has a unique authority. And that's where Jesus goes in the next verse, verses 10 and 11. Look at those again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This is the first time the title Son of Man shows up in Mark's gospel. It's a reference to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, which we heard as the scripture reading from Jesse this morning. By claiming to be the Son of Man, Jesus is claiming a unique authority a unique identity. Those two things go together, who he is and what he can do. Of course, he can heal the paralytic physically with his unique authority. But the larger question of this text is if he can heal the scribes of their spiritual paralysis. They are no less dependent on Jesus than the paralytic but their learning and status make them less aware of their need for it. So if you're here this morning and you're realizing that you're like the scribes, that you haven't recognized the authority of Jesus, again, I would just urge you to consider Christ and to come to him. There is no one else who can help us with what we most need. He uses his authority for the good of the people. He lived and died and rose from the dead to save sinners. He's a good savior. And you do need to decide the question of who Jesus is. Everyone needs to decide the question of who Jesus is, not because his identity changes based on your assessment, but because heaven or hell, it's all the difference based on who you say Jesus is. Now, surely there were all kinds of folks in the crowds that day. And in verse 12, we see their reaction. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. My guess is that they never saw anything like this because they've never seen the kingdom come before. Here it is in the flesh, in the works and words of Jesus. The king. Remarkably, even the lame, those who can't walk, are being invited into the kingdom by the king to receive all his benefits, forgiveness, and even healing. You can read the prophets like Isaiah 35 and Jeremiah 31 and see that these are precisely the things experts in the law should have expected. But their spiritual blindness and paralysis prevents them from seeing what is clearly evident about who Jesus is and what he can do. We too should realize our need and recognize Jesus' authority. That's what we've been considering all morning, that Jesus helps those who realize their need. And if you do that, realize your need, recognize his authority, you can then, third point, receive his friendship. This is our third and final point from the text, verses 13 to 17, Because as one fellow said, Jesus does more than preach repentance to sinners. He befriends them. Look again at verses 13 and 14. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, I mentioned earlier that Mark chapter 2, 1 to 17 has the first two instances of the five conflicts in this chapter. And maybe you wondered why we're taking two at once. It's a good question. I think it's because Jesus' theological summary of what we just taught about, verses 1 to 12, is in verse 17. You've already heard it, but look again. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, but Uh, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, excuse me. It's the perfect summary of what we've just seen with the paralytic. The sickness metaphor is spiritualized about our sin and how Jesus can heal, that is, forgive. Jesus is calling sinners to himself, forgiving and healing them. But why does Mark intrude the story of Jesus calling Levi into into the middle of these two things that seem to go together? Verses 1 to 12 and verse 17. It's because, in the mind of an ancient Jew, sinners and tax collectors go together. See, the historical context is really helpful here. Sinners and tax collectors go together. And this Levi, who we believe is called Matthew elsewhere, he's a tax collector of all things. I mean, just, I don't know if this strikes us as it ought to. Listen to one description of the scene. Levi is stationed at an intersection of trade routes to collect tolls, tariffs, imposts, and customs, probably for Herod, the Roman ruler at the time. Tax collectors were renowned for their dishonesty and extortion. They habitually collected more than they were due did not always post up the regulations and made false valuations and accusations. Tax collectors were hardly choice candidates for discipleship since most Jews in Jesus' day would dismiss them as those who craved money more than respectability or righteousness. So here sits Levi at a booth near the sea with stacks of tax money, ledgers to boot, but very few friends. And here comes Jesus, intending to befriend him. Of all people, it would be like you picking me for your sports team instead of the far more athletic Ben Lacey or Barrack Waters. I don't work out. I eat candy most days. You don't want me for your team. But praise God, following Jesus is not like those times you got picked last to play on the basketball team. He pursues people to follow him. He does not wait for them to ask. Jesus wants to befriend us. He wants to make his followers into his friends that Jesus would call even Levi a tax collector, shows us that following him is open to anyone, regardless of how far we might think they are gone. So brothers and sisters, do not give up on praying and laboring for the salvation of your friends, neighbors, and loved ones. Do not give up on laboring for the salvation of your friends, neighbors, and loved ones. That's one encouragement from this text. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. And then in Mark chapter 2, he calls Levi in the same way. And the ones he calls, he claims as friends. Look at verses 15 and 16. And as he reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This meal that Jesus shares with Levi is just one instance of what Jesus clearly did a lot. Notice in the text, it says there were many tax collectors and sinners who followed Jesus. We shouldn't read this as just an isolated event. It's Jesus' custom to forgive sinners and make them his friends. Even the worst and greatest of sinners. Like all of us. Did you see how he dines with them? He's reclining at table. It shows that he delights to be with them. He's not just sitting at the table. He's reclined at table, verse 15 says. It's a key phrase. It means table fellowship. In Jewish society at the time, table fellowship like this was one of the most intimate expressions of friendship. Who you ate with shows your associations, your friendships. So the religious leaders, the scribes of the Pharisees, could not understand how Jesus could think of himself as a righteous person and still fellowship with such people. One of my best commentaries even wondered if this, eating with Levi, was more scandalous at the time than touching a leper at the end of Mark chapter 1. It's amazing to think about. So let me ask you, how would you compare yourself to Jesus in this? Do you think that associating with those who are lowly will spiritually stunt you or strengthen you? See, Levi's not like the people who work for the IRS or HR block, he'd be more associated in our day with the payday loans scammers or the get-rich-quick schemers. Do you think those folks are too far gone for Jesus? Are they not worth your time because they could never repent and turn to Christ? Well, it's rather as Matthew Henry said, that with God, through Christ, there is mercy to pardon the greatest sins and grace to sanctify the greatest sinners. Great sin and scandal before conversion are no bar to great gifts, graces, and advancements after. Nay, God may be all the more glorified. Brothers and sisters, members of this church in particular, we should let such principles govern how we spend our time. Do we look to associate only with members who seem like us, with shared seasons of life or common special interests, Or do we instead look to initiate relationships to do spiritual good to others when we know there's nothing we will get out of it? I think about Kim Tom, for example, who came over to my house this week when my wife was going to go out of town for a few days and cleaned our house while my children and my wife took a nap. She had nothing to gain from that. She didn't know I was going to talk about her in this sermon. She's probably embarrassed that I am. But what a great example of faith and fellowship in the Lord Jesus that we would serve others when we can get nothing out of it. We all ought to be more like Kim, who's a lot like Jesus. So why does Jesus mix so freely with tax collectors and sinners? Well, it's because their need was so great, and they, unlike the religious leaders, were aware of it. And that's precisely what Jesus says in reply. Look down at verse 17 again. One last time. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is, as my wife might say, side eye to the scribes and Pharisees. They think they're righteous, but they're not. And because of that, Jesus can do nothing for them. Jesus helps those who realize their need. He helps those who recognize his authority. Without a deep personal sense of need, you won't get any help from Jesus because an unwillingness to come to Jesus is a refusal to receive his benefits. You must realize you're sick before Jesus will heal you. And friend, we're sick with something much worse than physical paralysis. We're sick with a sickness that is spiritual, and it's called sin, and it's something which Jesus alone can do something about. Let's pray and ask for his help for that now. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for our sins. We thank you that he's a glorious, good, wonderful, kind savior who uses his unique authority for our good. Would you help us to relate to him in the ways we ought to, which are clear in your word, to recognize his authority, to realize our need, to receive his friendship, and to come to him for what he alone can give. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.